Bitcoin is a technology built for people that are paranoid and prepared. And unfortunately, this world has delivered on that paranoia this year. Hello there, and welcome to a special episode of the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken. This is part two of my double bill today, marking the 250th episode of the podcast. And I've got five of my most regular guests on to talk about what's happening in Bitcoin right now. But before that, we're going to hear from my amazing sponsors. So first up, it's BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services, my oldest sponsor. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Flory, for sticking with me for so long. So what can you do with BlockFi? Firstly, you can open up an interest account of which I am a customer of. I originally put 20% of my Bitcoin in and I know it comes with risk and you should definitely do your own research, but I have made nearly one Bitcoin in interest and I love it. I love the service and I love getting my interest every month. Also, you can use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan. You can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. If you're interested in checking out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com, or search for BlockFi in the Apple or Android app stores. Also, let's talk about the mighty Kraken, the best place for buying, selling and trading Bitcoin. But why are they the best? Well, firstly, their world-class security makes them the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange on the market. No filthy hacker is going to get your Bitcoin out of Kraken. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, they're going to help you with any issue you have, whatever the hell it is, wherever the hell you are. And they have the most comprehensive suite of tools available for buying Bitcoin. At Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start buying Bitcoin. And with their beautiful mobile app, no matter where you are, you can start buying Bitcoin. If you're at Starbucks, if you're queuing up for a Frappuccino and you're thinking, I want some more Bitcoin, you can do it with Kraken Pro. And with their margin trading, futures, and OTC desk, Kraken has every single option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so yes, this is part two of my double bill of shows I'm releasing today to mark the milestone of reaching 250 episodes. So if you didn't listen to the last one, go and check it out. I did a little intro, a little bit of a background to everything that happened. And also in that show, I asked a bunch of previous guests just to tell me one thing about Bitcoin. But for this show, I've invited on some of my most regular guests. I've got five people on today to tackle some of the most important subjects in Bitcoin right now. So I'm joined by Andrew Polstra, Giacomo Zucco, Jack Mallers, Matt O'Dell and Nick Carter to discuss all things Bitcoin. I hope you enjoy it. If you do have any questions, you can always reach out to me. It is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you've never checked out my other show, Defiance, we had our biggest day yesterday. I released a very special first part of a four-part series looking at the story of this heavy metal band called The Ghost Inside, who I'm a big fan of. They're in a bus crash in 2015. It was a fatal crash. They took four years to recover to get back to LA to do their comeback show. It's an incredible story. The first episode's out. Really proud of this work. And great work, by the way, by my engineer, Danny, who I shit, I totally forgot to thank in my last episode. Shit, sorry, Danny. Listen, let me tell you about Danny. Danny is fucking amazing. Okay, Danny reached out to me. I can't remember what it was, maybe a year ago. He said, look, I need to help you with your production. It's pretty ropey. 
He offered to do a couple of shows for free. I wouldn't allow him. I paid him. And then since then, he's worked with me nonstop. And it doesn't matter where I am in the world, whatever time I get in the files, it can be at like two in the morning, two in the afternoon on a Sunday, he gets it sorted. He probably gets some shit from his girlfriend because he's always there, always reliable. And all the work he's been doing on Defiance and growing that has been incredible. He is a great guy. Look, he does support Manchester United. That is a problem. But outside of that, he's a great guy. Danny, listen, love you, bro. Thank you for everything you've done. Okay, listen, I'm going to let you get on with the show. If you do have any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Thank you, all of you, for coming on. Um, 250 shows, which is kind of amazing. I did the numbers beforehand. Between you, you've done 19 shows for me. So, obviously, a massive thank you to all of you. Nick Carter's done five, but he's not here. So, like I said, we'll give him some shit. But anyway, loads to talk about. Bitcoin's tearing... Um, it's been a very interesting time. Um, I'm going to go with you first, Giacomo. We're in very unusual times. 2020 has been so weird. It feels like it's a dream. Crazy, uh, right? Crazy, yeah, crazy, right. man. A lot of it, yeah, which is good for Bitcoin, but with a lot of bullshit happening because of that. So it's hard to get too excited sometimes. But how do you take all of this in right now as the most anarchist person I know? <laughs> well, um, I think that uh, part of me has some kind of psychological pleasure in the fact that uh, the unsustainability of the present fiat system is becoming obvious even to, to the average Joe. So even, I mean, even my parents or my school friends n uh, kind of understand that the system is fucked up, which is for me is like uh, a, a step up in, uh, in, uh, in, in the respect and consideration. But that is counterbalanced by the fact that uh, the shit is happening is actually scary. Uh, is uh, the, the, the death of a system is never really uh, smooth, is never really uh, just the, is never really just upgrading to something better. There is always uh, some kind of collapse that you have to go through. And yeah, and 2020 is, is pretty scary as a year. And anarchy wise, I think that uh, is not really a moment in which we see the ideas of liberty, freedom and property taken very seriously by people. Uh, people is clearly that the parse dance trends, the criticism toward the current system is becoming very, very clear. Everybody's kind of unhappy and, and uh, angry with the current system. Everybody knows that the current system is unsustainable. The problem is that the alternatives that are being proposed are not strictly speaking, uh, libert libertarian. I think people is just oscillating between uh, uh, like Soviet communism and, uh, and, and crazy fascism. But uh, I mean, you cannot change if you, if you don't get out of the status quo. And the, 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 the difference between me and the pre-Bitcoin, the no-coiner anarchist that I was in 2012, is that now for the first time I see uh, not just a, an ideal to follow and uh, some uh, some logic to, to to explain, but I see some instruments, some tool to make things better. And of course, that tool is Zaxbox, my new shitcoin. <laughs> what about what are you about you, Andrew? Like you're the freak amongst us as we sit out and fight on Twitter most days. I mean. Jack's not often there. Jack sometimes comes in and says hello, but like you're not even on Twitter. Do you even know what's going on in the world? So sometimes people send me messages like about Twitter, like on Signal. I'll receive Signal messages as Twitter links, and then I'll try to open them and we'll say, "Oh, JavaScript disabled. You're not able to read this." But I can maybe guess, and then I ask them, "What does Twitter say?" 
So I do, I do read Twitter, but I ask people to read Twitter for me and send stuff. And I, I understand that, yeah, there's some sort of, there's a virus now. So I, I don't, I don't know like what it's called. I don't like, I'm not sure. So I understand that might be affecting the price. And that's maybe, that's my hypothesis is that perhaps whatever this virus thing is, it might have something to do with the Bitcoin price. But I, I'm not sure. I don't know a lot of these, these details. I'm not, I'm not a scientist, you know, I'm a mathematician. Well, you just need to stay in your bunker and keep coding, man. What about you, Matt? How you doing, man? We've had some battles this last couple of years. You well? Uh, thanks for having me on again, as always. Um, I mean, just to echo what Giacomo said, like I think a lot of no-coiners or Bitcoin deniers uh, would like to group Bitcoiners into this camp that we are rooting for collapse, that we're rooting for chaos. Um, I that can't be farther from the from the reality. The reality is that we see chaos coming. We see the potential for chaos, for the potential of collapse, and we think people should have an option. That people should be prepared, and they should have an option, a way out, uh, to try and minimize those negative, you know, effects. Jack, man, how are you? Yo, congratulations, buddy. Two fifty. Yeah, yeah, thanks. thanks buddy. Hard Did a. A few, including the Malice family, including getting a little bit stoned at your mum's house once and uh, popping in for Christmas and getting a steak from your mum, which was which was awesome. Uh, how have you been, man? I'm, I'm good, good, dude. I'm good hanging in there, just like everyone else trying to uh, survive the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, listen, you're the um, you're the youth amongst us here. How do you make out what's what's going on with everything in the world right now? Um, I agree with previous comments. I. You know, I think what's interesting is as Bitcoiners, we've all seen this coming. I mean, you can rewind any of our interviews and we've probably hinted or predicted some variation of this, but it clearly fucking sucks, man, uh, to live it. Uh, no one's a fan of what people are going through, like unemployment rates, people getting sick. Uh, yeah. And like generally the world changing is scary, um, no matter in what direction. So I think it sucks to live through. Now, with that being said, like as a trader, I'm loving it. You know? <laughs> like this is uh, this is where you make your penthouse money. Is when uh, there's chaos, there's inefficiencies in the market. When uh, from the top top down in hierarchy, uh, no one knows what's going on. So, as an entrepreneur and a trader, um, you know I live for these moments. It's why I join and committed basically my entire life to Bitcoin is I think that this type of year is not a one-off case as the public is really starting to describe it. It's not an accident. And, and so uh, I feel really confident in the work that we've all done over the last decade. And um, so the, there's a, a split. Of course, I, it's really painful and sad. There's people that's really you know, I'm close with that are going through a lot. Um, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone and especially to see people, family and friends that I'm close with to go through this is terrible. But at the same token, I mean, a lot of risk and a lot of hard work was put into this asset class that is Bitcoin and just generally trying to prepare myself as a millennial to kind of like be an adult in this world. And so it's kind of validating to see all that's happening and see Bitcoin trading at $11,000. Um, I, you know, there is a sense of me that is, you know, really enjoying profiting off of the chaos a little bit. I have to admit. Did you take out a hundred X leverage long? Oh no, no, come on, man. <laughs> I'm not allowed to. I don't think there's a U.S. exchange that allows me to do that. But uh, 
You're not going to VPN. No, we're trading. We're, we're trading, trading for sure. <laughs> All right, man. Well, listen, look, uh, I do want to ask one more thing about this. And again, back to Giacomo. So, Giacomo, this is a really, really tough question. So rather than telling me, I was going to ask you how does this play out, but that is a really tough thing. But maybe a better way to frame it is like, best case scenario, how do you think this all plays out over the next kind of 10 years with a little splash of realism? Well, best case scenario and uh, splash of realism are a little bit conflicting uh, mm-hmm. requests here. Uh, I think that realistically we can expect uh, the political world to just do more of the same. So things that are not that new, like uh, manipulation of the stock market to try to keep. I mean, now you can see uh, 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 companies that are in Chapter 11 uh, and their stocks are getting higher, are, are just trading higher in the stock exchange. It's something, uh, it's something that uh, is the same old uh, trying to pump the stock market by printing money, but the levels that we reached are unprecedented in at least in this phase of human history. Then you have like uh, uh, the, the 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 reserve requirements for commercial banks uh, going to zero. Uh, it's uh, like every discussion about. Uh, uh, politicians losing control of the monetary leverage for uh, manipulating and sustaining the sustainable bubble of the fiat economy is just uh, coming to its its uh, redirection. So uh, the the point is the point that makes it difficult to make a prediction is especially the timing. Uh, the, the usually the analogy that I really like is not a very happy analogy, but it's a good analogy. So you have a friend who is a junkie, like he's is is on heroin, and you know that is uh, he's just increasing the dose every time and every time he feel bad because of withdrawal it will just increase the shots so you know how it's gonna end you don't know when though because maybe your friend is uh, Otzi Osborne so he will just survive incredible doses of drugs for 60 years but you don't know that so you don't know how much an organic system can go on in a in a situation which is a clearly unstable equilibrium with physic with the positive feedback loops so uh, i think we land in hyperinflation and uh, chain failure of the real economy, which is basically already happening. Uh, what I didn't predict and what is very surprising is the rationalization that people will want to put on top of this basic monetary dynamics. So if you asked me one year ago, will the, 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 will the system crash? I would say, I would have said probably yes. If you asked me, will the system, uh, uh, how will people explain the crash? I would probably have answered you, uh, well, they will finally understand that the monetary manipulation was unsustainable. That's not the case. People will create a very strange narrative in order to support the chaos that is arriving. So it could be uh, it could be a medical narrative, it could be a racial narrative, it could be a geopolitical narrative, maybe a new war or something like that. And that stuff is seriously unpredictable. So uh, I think we are going to see we are going to see the collapse of the central bank. Uh, uh, standard policy in a matter of a few years at this point. I'm I'm trying to be uh, I'm trying to challenge this catastrophic view. But I mean, how can you realistically imagine a situation in which in which they can kick the the, the can down the road for ten years? Can you see that? I, I cannot. Yeah, maybe not. Andrew, were you about to chip in there? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think I think you're being. Um, I think maybe your time frame is is too tight, Giacomo. Um, so when you talk about there being uh, like hyperinflation, when you talk about the inflation increasing right now, this is true in terms of monetary supply. You're certainly right that we are printing money at, at, at just unprecedented rates, and, and we have been for the last 10 years. 
But how that translates into price inflation, like the, the cost of ordinary goods and services, and this has really been a surprise to me, but it seems like outside of a few key sectors, which are real estate inside of big cities, um, healthcare in, in the U.S., um, and education and, and uh, very popular universities, outside of those three sectors, we've seen like the price of, of consumer goods, the price of like retail appliances, the price of food and stuff, that actually stayed flat or even lowered. Um, and we see central banks that are worried right now in, in the immediate term about deflation and uh, price deflation, to be clear. Um, not certainly not uh, not monetary supply deflation. Although, although with this current pandemic, there's been such a demand collapse that we're seeing a lot less lending, and so the, the monetary inflation that's caused by uh, fractional reserve is also contracting. So we're actually seeing a bit of a monetary supply uh, contraction, and I appreciate this just this year while we're having this this pandemic. And if we're talking about a ten-year uh, timeline, um, I mean certainly we're going to be long past the, the local effects, but. Even before this year, it seemed to me that we weren't having as much price inflation as I expected. And I've been surprised by that. And I don't know how to square that with the sort of logical inference that all of this rampant money printing is going to cause an imminent collapse. It just seemed like it's not happening or it's not happening on, on the timeline that we would expect or it's not visible in the ways we'd expect. Well, one of the suggestions could be, sorry, Peter, if I just answer to this and then I leave it on. Uh, one suggestion could be a, a export of, uh, of inflation. So from especially looking at it from a U.S. point of view, because the dollar is the base, the pillar of the monetary system, there is a lot of exported inflation uh, with, uh, the, with the fact that the dollar is the base of most of the international commerce. So you can print here, but then you export the, the price inflation in consumer goods uh, out, outside because that's the way 60%, I would say, of the economy uh, goes. And then the second point is that you're right, there are key sectors in which uh, it's like the, the money which gets, gets printed is not like no strange attack. People is mostly receiving that in order to buy stocks to pump the market. So what you're seeing in the stock market is clearly consumer good inflation, but this particular consumer good is like uh, is stocks, uh, is, is just a stock exchange uh, shares, basically. So it's probably like a, a very localized cantillon effect that enters a specific market, inflates the price there, and then it's dropped there because liquidity is very low, but then eventually can break free. And if, if it does, uh, people who both stock are not forced to keep stock forever with the money that they received uh, at a negative interest. Well, one of the things I don't really know or understand, and I'll put this to you, Matt, is that like I listen to someone like Giacomo, I completely agree with him. I, I see the potential collapse of central banks. I mean, we're we starting to see this uh, with the collapse of currencies in smaller countries, high inflation in uh, Turkey. Um, and we could see this kind of chain reaction effect. Um, we could even potentially see hyperinflation in you know the UK or the US. People are saying it could happen. What I don't know is that does this move us to a place where we have a, a more responsible uh, monetary system that follows it? Or do we just do the same again? Does the dollar get devalued? Does the pound get devalued? And we just carry on the same road and... And on the way, we pick up a few more potential Bitcoiners. Well, I mean, to be clear here, uh, I'm definitely not an economist. Um, but to echo what Jack said earlier, one of the cool things, you know, one of the positive elements of this current situation is that really no one has any idea what's going on. You know, this is all new territory. Um, even the specialists are trying to figure it out. So there are a lot of inefficiencies in the market. There are a lot of opportunities out there for people. 
what I would say is like, I think if Bitcoin didn't exist, then we would end up with more of the same, right? And the, the beauty here, one of the reasons I devote so much time to Bitcoin is because individuals will have the option to opt out of that. And I think nation states and governments and, you know, just the powerful people around the world that have co-opted governments, they will begrudgingly come along eventually. Like, I don't think we can expect them to just out of goodwill uh, reform our, our money system or reform like how our, our financial system works. And it's a very strange time. And I think you put it well, Jack, that it's you know, obviously terribly sad. There are people losing their jobs. There are people dying in this pandemic. It is really sad. But I did also have a phone call this morning with my old business partner. I, the guy I had the agency in London. I hadn't spoken to him for probably a few months. And he was telling me about business. They were, they were about to take out a, a two-year lease in central London uh, a new lease for two years, um, and they've uh, they've cancelled it because they're all working from home. They don't know when they can be back in the office. And they he said to me, "Oh, we've decided now that we're going to stay in the office. Uh, sorry, we're going to stay working from home." And it also that solves another problem. They don't have to explain away the confusion when maybe they've got a developer in Amsterdam or or in India. So they're going to become a ro- remote business. They've all benefited from it. They've all had more time with their family. I'm the same. You know, I've not been traveling. I've had more time with my family. I've exercised more. And also, we're, we're starting to see people reject things like or question things like, should I be spending $50,000 a year going to college? So do you see this potential societal shift that actually benefits people in other ways outside of just a collapse of the money system? Um, yes. Uh, I have a few thoughts on this. Um, the first... Uh, like things like remote working to me is so painfully obvious and intuitive. Zap has been remote ever since I started it out of my bedroom. I mean, the access to developers that I have is global. Uh, Some of my most talented engineers are getting paid 60 grand a year because that makes them wealthy in their block of Serbia. Right. I mean, and while some jackass is paying someone 150 grand in San Francisco, So it's so painfully obvious to me, you should be doing your work where you're most comfortable, where you're around your family, where you feel like you can contribute to the company the best. And so I think there's a broader point, you know, you're maybe going to laugh at this, but a lot of change to me comes with like older generations, like dying, honestly, like there's a, there's a strong correlation to the legalization of marijuana here in the U S with older regulators and those uh, like senators and local governments just like getting too old to run an office. And then you get younger office that legalizes things like marijuana and is more progressive towards things like Bitcoin. So I think when we talk about like um, a shift, I think a decade is probably too short of a time frame in my opinion. Like, you know, markets can remain irrational far longer than you can remain solvent type of idea. So to uh, the p- points made earlier, I think, by everyone is, you know, you can't really predict. Like, you know, my stepmom's favorite line is, you know, Bitcoin went up $500. Why? Can you and dad tell me why? And I'm like, yeah, the correct answer is more people bought than sold. But if you want me to say it was because of the fucking coronavirus, uh, you know, you just you just never know. And so um, the only things I like to speculate on are where, you know, I'm confident I- I'm an expert. So I think in the next 10 years, Bitcoin will be a trillion dollar asset. I can tell you that confidently, but outside of that, I don't know. I think the world will probably slowly change as old people that don't like pot, that don't like Bitcoin, 
that are angry, they'll die. And when my generation is in office, like I know that if I was the president of the United States, the country would probably be a bit different. So I think change just takes time longer than we expect. Um, are, you yeah. are you announcing the campaign, Jack? Because uh, this would be a great, uh, great part of the show. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I can't I mean, vote for you, but I would. If you think like for me, it's I have such a interesting view on a lot of this stuff and not unique though. I mean, there are plenty of people my age, um, but you know, all, all the kids that I'm friends with, um, we look at the world very differently than a lot of people I argue with on Twitter. Bitcoin to us is very native. Like we grew up in the internet. I've never written a check before. I've never had a, a credit card. I've never been in debt. Like the concept of like me going to the bank and like, just like, borrowing like i like that doesn't make sense to me like bitcoin's so native to me whereas that uh, contrastly to you know people my dad's age you know we argue at you know dinner parties and such very frequently so i think it, it is like really a, a coming of age um and uh do i is the speculative question do i think that the older generation is going to come around to bitcoin before they die or are they just going to die and then you know that's like kind of my point if that's you know that could be like a really weird unique point but i think yeah like the world can remain irrational for i don't know 50 years or so maybe i'm still using the us dollar when i'm 80 years old um i have no idea but i can confidently say in the next 10 years things like remote working and you know bitcoin being a trillion dollar asset i'm very confident in things like that but outside of that speculating on you know, if we're going to enter a Bitcoin standard or Bitcoinization, I think is, I mean, you're just, you might as well have a glass of whiskey with that conversation. You're just fucking around. Yeah, it's, it is a funny time because, you know, when I was growing up studying history, you know, we studied some important events that happened. We studied the French Revolution and World Wars. And I kind of think, I kind of felt like all the cool shit had happened in the past, right? And I was just living in a time whereby, yeah, we just... We just live this normal time. We've got past all the crazy stuff. And and now I'm looking at 2020 and I'm thinking, no, we are living in one of those times that will be, you know, taught in history. And whether it's 2020 is a specific year or perhaps it's this decade, I do feel like we're living in a kind of weird revolution, a kind of unique revolution. Like a did in some ways, this feels like the digital revolution, not the invention of the internet, where actually it's empowered things. And I feel like a lot of things are changing. Like my son uh, asked to buy Bitcoin for the first time this week um, and also said he's not going to go to college. Um, he doesn't want to go to college. He doesn't doesn't have, doesn't have see any point in it. And I, I just can't help but feel like we're in this societal shift. And I'm seeing you nodding a lot, Giacomo. Yeah, I'm nodding especially because I, I think that uh, theoretically what, what Jack just said about old people and Bitcoin shouldn't be true. But practically, is I said that it shouldn't be true because uh, I know that mo most people that uh, were born like uh, the half of the last century, uh, they should be even more familiar than us with some of the things that Bitcoin represent. For example, all the regulations about uh, the, the crazy mafia of KYC, AML, this crazy idea that uh, you should uh, uh, incriminate innocent people before any crime is even committed just to follow any private transaction. This is something very recent, it's like something starting in the 70s and really, really exploding after the, after the Patriot Act in 2001. So uh, my grand, uh, I mean, my, my grand, grand, 
grandfather is dead, but uh, my father, in theory, spent half of his life in a world where KYC regulation didn't exist. And you could, it was just natural that you could just take your money out of the bank for whatever reason without giving any justification. And even if you talk about inflation, uh, the dollar really went into the crazy ride without any peg with the dollar only in 1971. And like, I'm in Switzerland now, I'm in Lugano. And the Swiss franc uh, kept the, uh, the peg with, gold, with physical gold in the central bank until the end of the 80s. So in theory, there is a lot of old people that should remember a war that was way less crazy about inflation and, and surveillance than, than the war now. So uh, maybe Bitcoin could ap appeal to them uh, uh, from the monetary, uh, monetary fundamentals of uh, uh, more, I mean, the, uh, Jack say that he's not getting any debt, so he's basically doing like what our grandfathers were doing, uh, saving and investing instead of borrowing and spending. So it's something that is getting back in a way, but probably they don't understand anyway because the, while the monetary fundamentals are actually turning back with Bitcoin a lot, uh, the, the technological instrument is so, uh, so alien, so, so exotic for them that they just don't get it. Like, for example, some very positive things coming out of this uh, lockdown uh, craziness are for sure uh, remote working, but especially homeschooling. I think that many, many people started wondering what the hell I was doing, paying all that money to sending my kids to, to, to read stuff that is just outdated compared with stuff on the internet. So I think that the, the, the homeschooling uh, uh, fallout of this, uh, of this situation will be huge. And that's positive, I think. Welcome, Nick. Sorry, I'm late, guys. I'm half an hour late, which is pretty unforgivable. No, it's totally forgivable. So um, what do you think on everything we just discussed? Um, I think uh, Andrew Pellstrom made some really great points. Um, I hated what Giacomo said. Uh, <laughs> you know, Matadel's got a pretty cool hat, so he, it sounds like he said something sensible. <laughs> so um, we started off by just saying, look, crazy fucking year. 2020 has been just, just gets weirder and weirder. Um, even even yesterday having what looks like the biggest bomb that's gone off since the, the Second World War just adds to this year and how terrible that is. But it's a very, very strange year, uh, very good for Bitcoin, but like not always easy to enjoy because there's a lot of suffering going on. But <clears throat> we're kind of at that point where we're thinking about, or really I was posing the question, is that there seems to be some quite interesting societal changes coming, not only with money, but people reconsidering college or Giacomo mentioned in their homeschooling. And maybe there's like a geographical change to work. A lot of people are going to work from home now. So how do you, Nick, take all of that in? And what's your interpretation on this year so far? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Bitcoiners uh, get accused of having this, like, I don't know how to say the word exactly, es eschatology, like eschatological doctrine. Um, I don't know if that's exactly right, where we, we fixate on, you know, like, like these doomsday scenarios and, you know, these end of times situations. I, you know, I take issue with that slightly, but yeah, I mean, we're naturally paranoid. Uh, Bitcoin is a technology built for people that are paranoid and prepared. Um, and unfortunately, this world has delivered on that paranoia this year. Um, and, uh, it's getting more chaotic and I don't expect it to get any less chaotic for the foreseeable future. I think a lot of us see it, see it as, as, you know, we're at the nexus of uh, a really significant historical transition from 
an era that was, you know, Pax Americana. You know, we're in the waning days of the American Empire, and the world's going to get a lot more dangerous and and destructive uh, in the next decade or so. And you know, there's a monetary transition happening, which is obvious to anyone who's who's looking at the stats. Um, so we, the technology that we kind of believe in, it can protect us from a small element of that chaos, not the whole thing. Uh, but you know, at the very least, the one thing that we're working on. Um, is going to potentially, you know, help safeguard the wealth of, of millions of people. That's not going to save them from discord um, or, you know, famine or, or warfare, but it'll help with, uh, with one thing that matters a whole lot. So, you know, unfortunately, we're basically being vindicated right now. It's going to cause the immiseration of hundreds of millions of people. But, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that Bitcoin exists. And uh, I, I think it's going to provide a lot of value to humanity in the next couple of years. So the one thing you did miss at the start, um, Nick, is that obviously I warm thanks to all of you for joining. Um, it's 19 shows between you, of which, Nick, you've done five. I think you're up there as like one of the most regular guests. So uh, massive thank you. I couldn't have done this without uh, the kind the kindness of your time. Um, and what I did do is, and it wasn't like just randomly picking all five of you as well. I picked you just for different subjects. And uh, Nick, I picked you because... Um, a lot of your analysis is very interesting, especially with regards to the markets. Um, you corrected me on something on Twitter the other day. Thank you. Um, I asked Jack to come on because I want to talk a bit about Lightning. Uh, I got uh, and Andrew on to talk about the tech. I wanted Matt to talk about just like the hardcore Bitcoin stuff. And, and I got Giacomo on just to do the weird bits. And um, so I appreciate you all coming on. So, But we should work through some of this because... When I started the podcast, it was back in November 2017. I'd only been in Bitcoin properly for eight months and experienced uh, a bull market and S2X and a lot of crazy stuff. And now I've been through a bear market. But um, it would be good to cover like some of these issues. So we're going to start with you, Andrew. Can we get a bit of a tech update? Obviously, the big thing happening at the moment is Taproot. Most of what you're going to talk about, I'm not going to have any idea what it's about. But I did see some rumblings on Twitter about Taproot, something to do with taproot nodes spamming non-taproot nodes and so can you, can you give us an update on what's going on here I can give a bit of an update so i can tell you that in the last month we finally as a community started thinking about taproot activation so this is something like technology wise been developing it for quite a while um arguably since the beginning of, of 2018 um i hope it might have been 2017 um but there's um now there's an irc channel there's a telegram group uh talking about uh, activation and this is a tremendous amount of activity and this is kind of unlike any and I'm not sure what analogy that I can draw to earlier activation scenarios in Bitcoin. Um, Taproot is in terms of the scope of it is maybe bigger than anything that we've deployed except Segwit but it's like maybe 10% as large as Segwit. It's actually fairly well contained because we're just creating a new transaction output type if users want to use this output type, they can. This gives them all the extra taproot features. And if they don't, they can sort of just look at it, say, oh, those outputs are probably fine, and, and just look the other way. That's, that's how a software works. Whereas in SegWit, we were changing the transaction format, right? We were moving witnesses out of the transaction, which meant that the peer-to-peer -peer layer had to change. And there was all this extra data that needed to be hung off of all these transactions. And so the result was that SegWit was not only very difficult to deploy for all the usual reasons that coordinating and deploying the fork is to deploy. It was also scary to deploy because the peer-to-peer -peer network was uh, was changing in like kind of a fundamental way, and it was changing it was changing the way that transactions were propagating. 
um, which is here. If you screw that up, if transactions don't propagate, you have the potential that like forks appear or something. And even if everybody agrees on what's a valid block and what's not, they might not agree on what transactions they've seen, and then, then you have chaos. And fortunately, that didn't happen with Segwit. Um, but what's nice with Taproot is that we don't have that risk. Like That's not a risk category that we have to think about here. So you might think that this would be like one of the earlier changes, like introducing um, uh, op CSV, say, which is a way that you can um, make coins so they're unable to move until they're a certain age, for example. Um, that's like a fairly minor, very narrow localized change that there wasn't a whole lot of argument about. There wasn't a whole lot of discussion. People kind of agreed it was a good idea. Some people who had the, uh, the ability and understanding to deploy it around the network did. Um, nodes more or less updated and didn't think about. What's new with Taproot is there are so many people who care about this. It's really fantastic. And this is a really good thing about Bitcoin. Um, but like, for example, six or eight, oh, wow, this year, okay, a year ago, um, a year ago, uh, Steve Lee and, and a few other people organized these uh, these Taproot workshops. Uh, the folks at uh, Bitcoin Optech, which publishes a tech newsletter, organized these workshops where you could do these Python notebooks. You sign up for these workshops, do this Python notebooks, like work through all the tech details of Taproot, create Taproot transactions, see how they would look on the network, all that good stuff. And Steve asked me and, and Peter and, and Greg and a few people to come help up with this. And we were expecting to get like 10 or 20 people to sign up and like all the usual, like all the usual suspects in IRC. And instead we got like 150 people. It was incredible. It blew us away. We had 150 people. We had to split up the workshop into like multiple sessions. Um, and I physically went to a couple of these because um, we didn't know about the virus yet. Um, it wasn't just those of us who aren't on Twitter. Like everyone thought it was cool. And um, I went to a few of these and people were really engaged. It wasn't even like they were like showing up and like kind of sleeping in the background. Um, and not doing anything. People were asking good questions. We found we actually iterated a fair bit on the design because of the, the kind of stuff people were contributing. So to answer whatever your specific question was, which I've now long since forgotten, there's so much activity now that I actually, I actually don't know the specific, um, every day there's a different specific issue that people are talking about. And in general, the impression I get is that there is a lot of activity and a lot of people who like notice something and then bring up a concern and then other people reply and then there's good discussion, productive discussion. Um, but there isn't controversy, right? There isn't like people saying taproot is a bad idea or this is a fundamental flaw or like this is really going to change things or like this is really going to break things. Um, it seems like all of the activity is basically excitement and positive iteration. And where you see people concerned about technical problems is maybe that they get overexcited or maybe that we need to change something, but like, it's not a, this isn't like some fundamental clash of personalities or clash of visions or anything like that. It's just technical iteration. That's surprising because it's happening on such a large human scale that so many people are doing it all at once. So, and ju just to be clear for like a moron like me who has no idea what he's doing when taproot activates, I won't really know, right? It's just this benefit in the background within Bitcoin, but for most normal users, they just will have no idea. Yep, that's, that's exactly right. Um, what you will find is that going forward, there will be slightly less pressure on the fee market. Uh, the privacy story will be slightly better. Um, there will be some things that you can do on Bitcoin that will feel like they're just like iterative improvements. But in fact, there are some certain limits in, in the protocol that no longer apply in Taproot that make that possible or make it tractable to compute or make it tractable to program. Because there's some stuff right now in Bitcoin that it is so complicated that even though we know we could do it, everyone's scared to. And Taproot has some simplifying things that make us less scared. Very cool. Um, 
So yeah, so as an end user, it's just going to look like progress continues as usual. But but actually, there's a bunch of barriers to technical development that won't be there anymore. Go on, Jack. Of course, Peter, you, you oh. should you should also update your node, and I know a lot of Twitter friends that will help you yeah. with that. So just ask, and a lot of people will generously help you with the updating of your node. I'll I'll update on all three of my nodes. I mean, I I reviewed the Taproot code last week. Uh, I spoke to Matt about this. Um, I had a look at the Taproot code, and I was happy with it. I good. No, I really appreciated your comments. And that was right. some clever cryptography you developed, actually. Like the, the protocol is much more efficient. I didn't find anything wrong with it, so we're good to go. What about you, Jack? You want to chip in there? Yeah, I just wanted to ask Andrew, as long as I have the luxury of like being on a call with him. Yeah. This is pretty sweet. Um, so a lot of the noise about the for old nodes to update to like what people are calling this taproot patch um which would avoid like void some type of spamming but it, it seems like those that are yelling about this and characterizing it as like a quasi like in the family of hard fork because it, it's in the sense encouraging and almost requiring people to update isn't that like severely disingenuous um for a lot of reasons but i, I think it'd be cool if you just touched on that because it seems to be a lot of the public conversation coming from what is historically malicious people towards Bitcoin. And for the listeners of the podcast, I personally would love to hear you touch on it, but then also probably would be nice to clear that up, uh, you know, for, for those listening, because I've seen it on Twitter now like 10 times. Cool. So I'm not, I'm not sure I can give you like a nice, like this is a disingenuous kind of soundbite, but I can give a bit of, of nuance to this, which is whenever we do an update like Taproot, um, we think a lot about technically how we'd want to deploy an update. And sometimes there's an update mechanism that's particularly elegant or clean or reliable or something that we find that would go much better if nodes had other updates to the way that they propagate transactions or the way that they um, decide what goes in their mempool or the way they um, manage their denial of service limits um, or the, the rules for banning and banning peers and that it would be nice if we could propagate transactions in a certain way. Today, you can't do it because we have denial of service rules. So wouldn't it be nicer if the network were such that we didn't have those rules in our way? And so you see something like this where in order to update in a way that we would like to for technical reasons, we maybe need nodes to update their software to have slightly different transaction um, or peer validation rules. And if people don't update, then okay, fine. We'll just have to find a different way to deploy Taproot. This may be a little bit less clean and so on. Um, and if people don't want to update to Taproot, certainly, I mean, that's, that's their prerogative. Um, this, is, this is an open network. There are, no, there are no kings here. There's nobody who gets to dictate what updates happen. But um, to the extent that people trust the Taproot developers and they trust like the, the core like, community of, of whoever's um, doing technical stuff on Twitter, which is actually it's pretty large. It's a few hundred people now. Um, was uh, was Segwit? It was a smaller group. It was still larger than people like to say, but it was a much smaller group. To the extent that people trust that that set of developers and that set of, of network architects to deploy something like Taproot, it seems silly that they would be willing to go along with Taproot, but unwilling to go along with like a pre-Taproot kind of update phase that doesn't even touch consensus rules, that that only affects the denial of service rules on the peer-to-peer -peer layer. So, so. I guess the, the, the short soundbiting answer is that all of this is voluntary, right? 
if people want to update their nodes, they're welcome to update their nodes. Nobody's being forced to update their nodes. It's not like, and saying we're making people update their nodes so that Taproot will work is really disingenuous because of course we can't make people update their nodes for Taproot to be like, I mean, we can't make people update their nodes for this Taproot update any more than we can make people update their nodes for Taproot. In either case, it's a voluntary choice that Bitcoin validators are making uh, when they choose whether or not to update their nodes. And if people don't want to do that, there's ultimately nothing that the developer community or nothing that any community can do to change that. And if people don't do it, we can't deploy Taproot. I mean, we, we would be deploying Taproot into a network where nodes aren't updated and where it wouldn't be safe to do so. And so, like... Right. So yeah. we should export this sound file and post it to Mike in space, let him read it or let him hear it. Yeah, yeah. well, I think the point, like, or at least my opinion of digesting is like, it's obviously optional, like by definition, is like how Bitcoin works. And if you don't upgrade, then like, I mean, it's what can already happen today will happen. Like you'll probably just see more like bandwidth being used, but it's not like, I don't know. I just want to kill, as long as we're on a podcast that gets listened by a lot of people, like it's probably worth killing that narrative. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, a consensus change, and, and but I mean, even if it was, which is not, it's voluntary, right? I mean, the, the way that updates work, whenever people are talking about being forced into updates in Bitcoin, is kind of disingenuous. What they mean might be like they're worried that the rest of the network is going to update without them, and then they'll be at a disadvantage. And okay, I mean that's that's part of living in a, in a society. There's sort of uh, there's ultimately a uh, a loss of personal sovereignty as soon as you want to depend on anyone else and interact with anybody else you kind of have to go along with uh with the way they want to interact with you and that's something that bitcoin can make more transparent bitcoin can't change that and then bitcoin shouldn't change that but it makes it more transparent certainly and maybe that's that's why there's more yelling about it right maybe that's a good thing when we see people complaining against this transparency where they didn't used to be um but that, that's the situation yeah definitely assuming you're dialed into a lot of this map well, I mean, the concern is that obviously there's going to be a subset of people that are going to be running older nodes that do not want to update to Taproot. Um, they, if they don't want to get a ton of invalid transactions, then they're going to have to update the patch, right? They're going to have to put a patch in there uh, to improve their bandwidth situation. If they don't, then they will get more invalid transactions than usual and their bandwidth usage will go up a bit. But I, it doesn't seem like the end of the world to me, um, especially since they can patch, they can put a patch on, on, the, on the oldest software they want to, right? The oldest version of Bitcoin Core, they can just, I mean, there's reasons you shouldn't be using it, but they could just slap a patch on that and switch. Basically, the idea is you put the witness, the witness is part of the transaction ID, right? Am I correct in that, Andrew? Uh, so no, there's two. There's the transaction ID and the WTXID. And the word right. WTXID. And I think the change we're talking about is one where we're using the WTXID in some context where we used to use the TXID to identify transactions on the network. So basically, so a, so a non-taproot node doesn't keep downloading the same transaction ID over and over again. Exactly. Right. So if you take a transaction, um, you tweak its witness, Right now, these old nodes um, are not going, well, they won't, they'll recognize they're the same transaction because they see the TXID is the same, but they won't realize, they won't be able to, how do I want to say this? 
basically without looking at the witness TXID, they can't say, oh, I've seen this transaction before. I want, I don't want to see it again. Like it was invalid before, it's, it's invalid now. Because what's happening is these old nodes are checking the TXID. They're saying, well, this is invalid, but only because the witness is invalid. I can't distinguish between two transactions that differ only in the witness. So I'm just going to accept that if I see this transaction again, I'm going to check it again. Because I, I can't I can't be sure that the witness didn't change on me. So the update um, is is to actually keep track of what witnesses we've seen. So now if you receive the same transaction twice and it has the same witness, you can you can reject it out of hand. Um, and if witnesses change, sure you have to revalidate it, but that's I mean that's what you have to do when the witness changes. Yeah, so that seems like relatively uncontroversial to me. Like if you're running a node and you're you have a way of determining which transactions would be invalid while consuming less bandwidth, then like you should probably put that patch in. Right, I, I agree, and this seems it seems silly. And actually, I'm, I'm realizing now that this is something that's completely separate from Taproot. Like it is something, it is an issue on the network today that Taproot will make worse because Taproot um, changes how the, the the witnesses for Taproot outputs are are different and richer than the witnesses for existing SegWit outputs in ways that I don't remember. I, I can't elaborate on that, but uh, um, this update is kind of independent of Taproot. It's an efficiency thing that ought to be deployed. And if the controversy is about people who just don't want to update their nodes, people who do, who are doing that should already have these old nodes that they're scared to touch. And, and maybe there are good reasons for that. Maybe they have a node that's on a hardware security module that's like air-gapped or like this behind, like, I don't know, somehow they can't touch it. But what they should be doing is having that node talking to an updated node and the updated node talking to the outwider network. And in that case, as long as they do that, as long as they are guarding their ancient un untouchable node, with a one that they're keeping updated, then they don't have to worry about this at all. So there's actually, there's this, basically what I'm saying is any node that you have that's facing the internet should always be be updated because they're, they're you know, there's ongoing reasons that you want to be updating, both for efficiency, for security, for, for just keeping up with changes on the network. And if you have a node that doesn't, you don't want to update, that's fine. It doesn't need to be facing the internet. You can just put like a firewall, a proxy node in front of it and then keep updating that. And that, that you should have been doing always, right? So this specific change is not a reason to be getting upset. I think like every every other change before this should have been equally upsetting, right? Yeah, this is, well, this is why I was categorizing it as potentially disingenuous is because I saw it the same way. And it to me, it just read like one of those social attacks on what is seemingly a good thing for Bitcoin from the same crowd that was around in 2017. And it just very clearly read to me like if you had any idea what you were talking about, you wouldn't say what you are saying. And so that is how it read to me. And the more I thought about it, the more, so yeah, I think it, I, the more I think about it, I think it's just a like attempt at cluttering and confusing Taproot as, a, as an upgrade and causing controversy um, and gathering consensus and actually deploying it. Next up, I talk to all of these guys again more about Bitcoin. But before that, let's talk about these amazing sponsors I have. Okay, sportsbet.io. Come on, have you checked them out yet? Do you like a little bit of a wager on the football, on the basketball? Well, you definitely need to check out sportsbet.io. They are the best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin, because they're badasses. I went out to meet them. I went out to Estonia. I met the CEO. I met the team. They took me out for beers. We went and played some pool. It's really good to get to know them. And I found out when I was there, they're not just accepting Bitcoin, they actively promote it. So you definitely want to check out sportsbet.io. 
And with the football about to finish, we've got a few more games left. We've got the European football to finish. We'll have a little break and it's back to another season of Liverpool dominating and Tottenham being shit. Very much looking forward to that. So to close out the season with the Champions League and the Europa League, Sportsbet have a number of challenges that you can complete to earn more Bitcoin. If you want to find out more about that, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is Sportsbet, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Also, Casa. Have you checked out Casa yet? Come on, you all know Casa is. They are the best in Bitcoin security. I am now a customer. I've now got my multi-sig set up. I've distributed my keys. I am not going to fuck this up anymore. But if you checked out Casa yet, listen, if you are leaving your Bitcoin on an exchange because you're worried about holding it yourself or you're worried about the risks of a single hardware wallet, then there isn't a better choice than checking out Casa. And also, look, Bitcoin's booming. Whatever you have right now, my 10x, you do not want to wait. You do want to leave this too late and end up screwing up and losing your Bitcoin. Because with Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, your own personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. And Casa being so badass, they've got a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet. And it's for only $10 a month. And you know what? They also have a free trial. So it's a no-brainer. You might as well check it out. And with Casa Platinum, you get their 3 or 5 multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get a full service offering, including customized personal security review, inheritance, of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security, get your shit together, and have total peace of mind. Find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Well, listen, while I've, got, while I've got you there, Jack, I'm going to switch it up because I want to ask you something. I feel like, outside of what you've been doing, that it's been a little bit quiet on the lightning front recently. Now, you're obviously doing something very cool and very interesting, and we should talk about that, at, and you're going to come on separately, and we're going to do a show about that. But I feel like lightning has been, a, I don't know, it's been a little bit quiet recently, and am I missing something here? Is it quiet? Is there stuff going on I don't know about? Um. Well, define quiet and stuff like there's some variables in your sentence that could go <laughs> many ways what i mean is um is that i don't feel like i've heard a lot of conversations and talk about lightning say as much as i did a year ago and that could be for a variety of reasons it could be that a lot of people just don't have a need for lightning how people envisaged it a lot of people just want to buy and hold their bitcoin and uh and that kind of uh, that idea of using it as a fast and quick way and cheap way to do transactions, there just isn't a huge demand for it. That said, I know Strike is doing something differently. So like I would put that in a separate bucket, but I just feel like it's been a bit quiet on the lightning front. Um. Yeah, certainly. Well, I think like the actual development on the protocol and like iterating and building spec 1.1, like all of that stuff is going at a much faster pace than maybe a few years ago. And this is just stuff that you may not see. Mm. Um, but like overall funding in lightning projects is at an all time high engineers contributing to the projects is at an all time high. So like all of those metrics are in really good shape and the general stability of all the client implementations and protocol implementations, like everything's like pretty great um, in that realm. But yeah, I think, like your point, and I would agree with you, is trying to find the existing value prop of Lightning and understanding where that value lies in the consumer um, and, and does that scale today 
uh, is what everyone is trying to figure out. I mean, there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit on top of lightning and for good reason, but I, I think it's fairly undefined, like what it should be used for, why it's really important. Um, yeah. So I, I think I agree, like strikes evolution and like how transparent that story has been. I could retell it, but it's, I mean, to me, it's been mind blowing kind of being, having a front row seat into all of this over the last, what is it now? Three, four years and learning not only you know how lightning works and a lot of the technicals but more so how people use it and people's relationship with bitcoin as a whole like how people understand relate to bitcoin and where their true interest in bitcoin lies like i know in the early years of lightning people loved zap because it was a catalyst to help bitcoin get to one hundred thousand dollars they didn't love zap because they were using it per se they loved a Bitcoin ETF. They loved Lightning. They loved Backed, right? With no other justification other than like this thing is going to justify my investment and like make my wife happy or whatever their personal narrative was. So now we're kind of past that phase though. And like Lightning should be delivering on some functionality. And like we need to better understand that because it seems the like fundamental core relationship that the majority of the world has with Bitcoin, at least those holding it, is an, it's an investment vehicle for them. It's a way to preserve and appreciate wealth. And that's like the meme right now that has scaled the most and attracted the most market participants is I buy this thing, I sit on it, and I get richer. And it's a meme, but it's like not far from the truth. And so if that's the case, then using it as a unit of exchange is, is really counterintuitive um, and defeats the purpose. And so exploring ways of like, well, then what is Lightning actually doing? Is it a way to settle and clear value faster, like what Strike is doing? Is it, is it an open protocol of value transfer that ties different sort of neobank and fintech applications together like there now there i think is a new discovery phase we've kind of graduated past like in the beginning looking back zap was like a cheerleading project it was it was more representing a movement and organizing a group of people than it was like actually delivering on pure functionality um and now i think we've graduated past that so a long-winded answer just kind of summarize my thoughts no no but it's good and nick i can imagine you've thought about this quite a bit um like i say i don't really have much of a need personally for lightning right now i don't use it but yet i use bitcoin almost certainly i use it every week and more than once a week perhaps two to three times a week for various reasons but the lightning side of bitcoin i'm not using i, I can't seem to find a use case for it do you think we've got like an eloquent solution to a problem that doesn't exist or do you think this is just another building block for the future and 10 15 years time we'll all be really glad that lightning exists well i think, well, I think uh, lightning typifies the way that um i know that people said lightning would be bitcoin scaling mechanism but i think more to the point it kind of typifies the culture of bitcoin scaling the underlying philosophy which is registering as little information to the chain as possible and uh, deferring settlement effectively. I know some Lightning enthusiasts would disagree with me that Lightning is deferred settlement, but uh, taken in the broader sense, um, you know, initiatives like Lightning, uh, Liquid, and um, any of the contract uh, elements that we would get from Taproot, which involve registering less information to the blockchain, 
That is how Bitcoin scales, just by packing more transactional density into each byte that has to be saved. Um, so Lightning is, is the most well-developed of those initiatives. I think the reason it hasn't seen as much uptake is just there fundamentally isn't really a culture of retail payments in Bitcoin beyond what you know uh, enthusiasts do. Um, there isn't really as, as much necessity for kind of smaller retail payments with Bitcoin. Uh, to me, you know, base layer Bitcoin is like a, a, a wholesale settlement network, um, you know, analogous to Fedwire or, uh, the, you know, uh, the clearinghouse interbank payment system in the U.S. Um, so, you know, that, that it's like this core settlement infrastructure. And we're, my guess is that we're going to get layers and layers on top of it, um, of which Lightning is probably going to be the, the it's it's the first and, and the, the best developed at present. But, you know, Bitcoin retail payments uh, don't really satisfy a need that lots of people have right now. So it's not that surprising that we haven't seen more uptake on the retail payment side. Um, you know, I think Saifedean has a, a good quote about it. He says, you know, using Bitcoin for retail payments is like driving a Concorde down the street to get groceries or something like that. Um, you know, so I, it's fine to me that there hasn't been a huge amount of uptake of Bitcoin for these smaller retail payments and that it's primarily used on kind of a utility basis uh, for settling larger amounts of value. Uh, that that kind of makes sense. Um, I, I'm sure one day it'll change, but it's probably going to take a lot of just... I don't know, like something has to change in, in the in the minds of Bitcoiners uh, for that to happen first. Um, so it's I don't think it's a technological problem. It's just the 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 utility mode uh, that people, you know, pe people don't really require Bitcoin for smaller payments. Uh, not that that's not how it was intended to be used. It's just that's not how it's developed so far. So, Jacob, I do. Do you think it will require Bitcoin to get to the point where it becomes a unit of account for people f for that to be a case, for it to become more useful? I think that, no, I don't think that, especially in the digital age, I yeah. think that uh, the point of having a unit of account is less useful than it was uh, like, uh, say, one, 100 years ago. So uh, having the same medium of exchange is important because otherwise, if I want to pay you or you don't accept the same the specimen for payment, I need the liquidity for some kind of bridge. And that's a, and that's a matching problem. While if we just use a different unit of account, we just use an instant converter. So unit of account function of money, I think right now is the last uh, important thing. Of course, there is a logical progression. First, a store of value, then medium of exchange, and then unit of account. The reason is that a medium of exchange is serving a delayed exchange. So instead of giving something to you and getting something back, I'm giving something to you, getting something that I will use later to give something else back. So I need to store the medium of exchange for a while until I will exchange it again. So there is a precedency there, but it's not entirely true that Bitcoin right now is not useful as medium of exchange. It is in a very specific uh, niche that maybe we don't discuss a lot because of the nature of this niche, which is uh, online gray markets or dark markets. Uh, people are, are not intensively using Lightning there, but it makes perfect sense there. Think about uh, paying for a VPS 
when fee when on-chain fees go up a little bit you want to use bitcoin think about paying i don't know a, a cam girl service or everything you don't want to pay with a name-based credit card uh, or think about small payment online by people that are excluded by the kyc mafia which is most of the people uh, inhabiting this uh, this this hair i think a very strong um, a very good step in this direction was made in the better hash protocol starting uh using lightning payment for uh for a hasher in the mining pool that's very important because a, a mining pool a hasher in a mining pool is a typical example of somebody uh doing a transaction online where anonymity and privacy are kind of important so you don't want to use a credit card payment and in that case having lightning and there are there are small payments there so i think that we maybe underrepresent these these cases because uh, uh let me put it this way permissionless saving permissionless saving is still a revolutionary act but is not socially uh, sanctioned as something uh, dark or, or 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 creepy it's just i mean everybody wants to save for their family and their life so even if the government may uh, crack down saving like roosevelt did with gold i mean the government will eventually crack down permissionless saving but permissionless spending is more mostly associated with uh, uh, stuff that we don't want to show and we don't want to discuss, like uh, paying for a, a, a burn phone, a, a, a virtual SIM card or stuff like that. Uh, of course, there is another very, very niche stuff, which is permissionless, permissionless innovation that I think would be very cool about lighting with payments. I give you an example. If I, if I create any kind of crazy stuff, like a website where you can feed chicken or a website where you can you can draw dick pics on a giant wall on a giant screen, uh, then uh, I don't want to set up a company and a bank account with with Venmo for that because it's just a very quick experiment. It's a fail fast experiment. So I need Lightning, or uh, the, the problem with Lightning is that I need that, but people is not spending that. So maybe I will need some kind of bridge like some company where you can accept landing payment with people spending with credit card. But I don't think such a company can exist. I mean, it seems too hard to create. That's crazy. <laughs> well, listen, Jack, we're going to do that one separately. We're going to do strike you, me on our own. We're going to get into that. Listen, I was a uh, Matt. I was on a uh, call yesterday. I did an interview with Max Hillebrand, who you all know. And we had a, we had a long conversation about uh, privacy and, um, I, I put it to him that actually I, I see there's kind of potentially two primary types of Bitcoin user. There's the Matt O'Dell type who has his node. He coin joins, uses Tor. You've got no idea what Bitcoin he's got, where they are, where they're going, any of his addresses. And then there's the Pete McCormack type who doesn't do any of that shit. And, um, and as we head into another bull market... We're going to have more people coming into the market. We're going to have a lot of people coming in, going to exchanges, uh, buying, uh, putting in their credit card information, putting in their uh, KYC information, buying Bitcoin, maybe putting it on a hardware wallet, maybe leaving on an exchange. And what I feel is like over time is the volume of the numbers who are more like me is, is going to be far higher than the numbers like you, even if the percentages stay the same. So does that worry you? Because I know how much you want to make me more like a you and... And I certainly should head that direction. But, but does that worry you? I mean, look, I'm definitely concerned um, about the current privacy situation globally, not just in Bitcoin. 
Um, we've seen a lot of surveillance overreach over the last decade, two decades. Uh, if I wasn't concerned, I wouldn't be a broken record about it. But if I wasn't optimistic, I also just wouldn't even bother to try. Um, so it's important to frame it in, 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 in that way. Um, I think it kind of goes hand in hand with the previous lightning discussion. Uh, you kind of, like people will figure this stuff out when they need it, when they get burned and when they need it. And with lightning, you know, it's important to unpack that we, on, on Twitter, on Bitcoin Twitter, we live in a bit of bubble. Like Bitcoin Twitter got a little overblown with the hype and they got really excited. We all got really excited. And now it came back down to reality. But for actual Bitcoin users, um, Lightning has been slow and steady improving. Uh, and But there's a, there's a couple things that are really holding back that, that permissionless payments type of situation. And I, I think that goes hand in hand with privacy there because those things are the need. The, it's, it's more censorship. It's a lot of these transactions right now are happening in cash. So we've already started to see restrictions in cash. So as that as that continues and escalates, um, people will be more likely to seek private payments, seek another way to do private payments because cash is the best way to do it. Um, and then the other thing is, like on the receiving side, like people don't realize. Uh, I think the most important. I mean, now I'm being hyperbolic. One of the most important privacy projects in Bitcoin is BTC Pay Server. Because it, it acts as both an off-ramp and an on-ramp that is open source and is not regulated. So with terms of to, to have more merchants go that route, and BTC Pay Server is like a relatively new project, to go that route, and that's how they're getting their Bitcoin. Um, they're earning it because they, want, they, they, they have a need for Bitcoin. They have a need for those permissionless payments um, should help. Uh, I, I, my, my concern is I think we will get better privacy tools and more demand for those tools when there are inevitably more crackdowns. My main concern is that because the Bitcoin blockchain, if we're right, which I think we are, it's going to be around forever. So my concern is when those crackdowns happen, individual Bitcoiners are going to get fucked for things that are five years ago, 10 years ago, like that they didn't even realize they were doing. They just weren't even aware of it. But when that happens, when you get burned, when your friends and family get burned, when people you've grew up with get burned, like then you learn, then you figure it out. And I, I just I would like to soften that blow, you know, before it happens. Andrew, are we ever going to get to the point where we have privacy on chain so someone like me just doesn't even have to think about this stuff? Yes. Um, I don't know when. There's a lot of uh, technology components that need to be in play for that to happen. Um, so we can we can make small improvements. Um, there are a few things like wallet fingerprints, like the way that wallets choose coins, the way that they set their sequence numbers. There's just a lot of different parts of a transaction that uh that fingerprint wallets and wallets are getting better and better at, at not doing that we're seeing more development and uptake on things like um like join market um or wasabi wallet um we're seeing lightning wallets to do uh, a lot to improve the on-chain privacy story just by moving stuff off chain um taproot will do a lot for hiding the nature of bitcoin scripts 
So right now in Bitcoin, you can tell whether or not a coin represents like an escrow or represents like a, a movement into liquid or if it represents like some sort of weird complicated contract or if it represents a, uh, a lightning payment uh, or if it represents a multi-sig or, or, or whatever. Taproot will, in the most common case, make all of those things look indistinguishable. So then all that wallet anti-fingerprinting work will, will really complement that where not only can you not tell whether somebody's using um, like Electrum or if they're using like Mycelium or people still use Mycelium or if they're using Bitcoin Core or whatever, um, you also won't be able to tell if they're using Lightning even or if they're using some like, um, they're using um, BitGo or something where they, they have a weird script associated to it. But what we really need for privacy is, well, one is that we would like to be able to hide the amounts of all of our transactions. And we have a few ideas of how to do that, but none of them right now have the right set of trade-offs for Bitcoin. Um, we have confidential transactions that, that we've got deployed on, um, I guess, Liquid, and then Monero has it, and a few other um, systems have it. The problem with confidential transactions is that it changes the cryptographic assumptions of the system. It means the soundness of the, uh, the currency supply is now dependent on the hardness of some cryptographic computational problem. And we actually know that that specific problem, the discrete log problem, is broken by quantum computers. So we know that there's like a, an expiration date on that kind of stuff. So we don't have a great way. We have a few ways, but no good ways to do to hide the amounts. Um, and then going beyond hiding amounts, what we really want is to be able to hide the transaction graph in the same way that Zcash does. But as we know, Zcash makes really bad trade-offs. This is not just like a bit of an efficiency hit and like a bit of some new cryptographic assumptions um, where they didn't used to be. This is like, first of all, you have this whole issue with trusted setup and where you like try to distribute this trusted setup. You have a massive amount of code complexity and cryptographic uh, system complexity that's difficult to analyze and reason about um, and difficult to implement. Uh, we've seen issues with the implementations like not having constant time code where stuff needs to be constant time and, and other things like that that are very straightforward if you're working on something that's simple where you can like hire a bunch of auditors and where you can get like an, an off-the-shelf cryptographer to do what you're doing um, rather than needing to, to hire like the three people in the world who wrote the paper who, who represent this. Um, with Zcash, we also see a huge performance hit. Um, like it's impossible to make a shielded transaction on like any hardware wallet today or even uh, a hardware wallet that I can really imagine. Um, if you tried to do like use like a ledger or a treasure or something, to do to produce these zero knowledge proofs, it would take hours. Like you'd have to have this little harder device. It'd probably even overheat, like just churning through all this. So there's a lot of research and development that needs to happen to, to make systems exist, to, to let crypto systems exist that could be used in Bitcoin to get on-chain privacy. And then there's a lot of development work getting that from a, a does a crypto exist to does a crypto something that we could actually implement and deploy and audit and vet and convince anybody that it's legitimate and then there's an issue of like how do we deploy that on the chain so we will get there one day like, and then that's that's sort of the dream that's that's the end point that's you know the, the shining city on a hill that we're all sort of sort of slogging towards um, but in the meantime as i mentioned there's a lot of small things that we can do that are really improving the privacy story um, and I think probably Lightning is actually the biggest one, just moving stuff off-chain um, and getting us to a point where we worry about like real-time privacy, about like timing attacks and stuff. And then we can think about using Tor, we can think about using uh, higher latency mixnets and stuff and actually make some leeway rather than thinking about how are we going to uh, make data private when we're publishing it on the blockchain permanently forever for the next hundred years. You know, that's a much harder thing to do, right? That's, that's, that's hard.
but uh, the lightning lets us move into the easier realm. So. Jacob, I can't believe we wouldn't talk about uh, privacy and surveillance without you chipping in. Yeah, no, I was I was actually going to ask a question to Andrew about another development, which I I think there is some like not not embarrassment, but some uh, shyness about uh, recently when I tried to ask about it and push it because it seems very challenging, very complex. So when so right now the problem with the transaction graph is that uh, you can assume as an heuristic that most of the outputs will just go to the payee, the single payee, and that's not true only in case of batching from big exchanges, but mostly it's one change for me and the rest of the payee. And you can assume that all the inputs are coming for, from the same people if that's not a pay join or a coin join. And these are fair assumptions, not because of the, technologically, uh, these are wrong assumptions. But economically, they are realistic assumption because people are just, uh, it's just easier to have a transaction which is not a coin join or a pay join and it's easier not to batch if you are not an exchange. But there is one specific uh, uh, protocol change that was discussed with Taproot initially, but then understood that it was postponed because it's changing the validation rules uh, more aggressively, which will be cross-input cross aggregation. So uh, Taproot allows you already to uh, uh, just sum up the signature of a multi-sig so you can blend uh, any multi-sig uh, with, with, uh, with normal single-sig transaction. But if you could uh, aggregate cross-input, the effort will be, especially with, a, with an high fee, uh, high block space fee environment, the effort will be people strongly economically incentivized to coin join and to pay join. So that means that people, uh, for example, I have to pay if I wait to coordinate with Peter and Jack and Nick and Matt to pay Andrew, then I can get probably a discount uh, up to 30% of my block space fee because witness is very, is very heavy and uh, we can just sum up the witness and publish just one and, and, and basically discount the, the transaction. That will be huge for pushing the coin join stuff. So, um, uh, usually when I ask, uh, uh, when I ask uh, if there is a, uh, I mean, I understand that that's more aggressive than Taproot, so that's the reason of the delay, but it will also be probably more urgent than Taproot may be to incentivize uh, usage of the transaction graph that are not uh, trivially um, addressable, like one payer, one payee. So that's my, isn't, isn't cross uh, input uh, aggregation a very big deal? Yes. yes. I was gonna ask the same question as well. Yes, <laughs> I could I could see it on the tip of your tongue, Peter. Um, so yeah, I mean everything you said is, is correct, Giacomo. Um, but as I mentioned, I guess very early in the call, I mentioned that the scale of Taproot is, is very small relative to something like SegWit, and cross-input aggregation moves us closer to something that is a much larger scale. And what we've seen now is that the community that there's so much input from people, even on, on like deep technical aspects of these sorts of changes that even something on the scale of Taproot is now getting so much detailed attention that uh, that there's actually a, a lot of value in looking at all of these things in detail and value in keeping it, keeping the scope narrow. Um, because if we had the kind of attention we have on Taproot on something that was twice as large as Taproot, it would probably take twice as long. It would have twice as much iteration and bike shedding and stuff. And in fact, the change for, for the Lightning Network, uh, SigHash and no input, which allows um, the uh, the lightning revocation transactions to have a, a much smaller size to grow to, to not grow as uh, as payment channels are used, whereas now they grow uh, the, the set of transaction grows linearly. Um, that we had to move out of Taproot into like a parallel proposal, 
Um, and I think we are actually just actually a parallel proposal. So with SIGHASH, uh, sorry, with us signature aggregation, where we landed was that because even we, meaning me and Peter and Greg, who like this is sort of our brainchild, because even we kept getting surprised by the interactions between us and other parts of the system, we felt like it just wasn't yet at a, at a level where we could run this through the development and review gamut and expect it to come out in a reasonable time frame. So I, it, it would absolutely be much larger. Um, and I think it's a really big deal because it would, you're right, incentivize people to obfuscate the transaction graph in ways that they are not incentivized to do today. But uh, but it's, it's just not something that we could get alongside Taproot. Um, it's unfortunately something that if we want to get Taproot at all, we're going to have to deploy Taproot. And then once we've done that, we can circle back and, and try to come up with a signature aggregation proposal, having had a couple of years of looking at the way that it interacts with, with blind signatures and the way it interacts with um, with other things. Yeah, Matt, did you want to say um, I mean, I'm also, I would love to see uh, signature aggregation. Uh, but I like, I kind of want to push back a little bit on this idea that I've seen in Twitter uh, where it's, you know, it's, it's the classic Bitcoin Twitter thing. Like, let's hype the shit out of everything. Uh, the My concern is, and I think it's reality, I think it's just, you know, I don't know, physics or something, uh, is that privacy will always be the more expensive option. It'll always be the more difficult option. You will always have to go out of your way to be to, to try and achieve some level of privacy, especially in the level of our surveillance state that we currently have. Um, it goes beyond Bitcoin. You know, it is it is something where people are revealing they're revealing addresses, they're revealing IP addresses, connecting them to each other, and these little mistakes can then screw you. And especially if we're talking about like a high fee environment, um, you know, I I see what what do I see? I see people preferring to um, consolidate all their UTXOs to reduce their future fee burden. Uh, and even if when you make a transaction, making a coin join batch type of transaction is the cheaper option, um, the cheapest option is just not making unnecessary transactions, right? And to just consolidate it all. And maybe Lightning switches up this element a little bit because you do like batch transactions, you know, these coin join type of transactions into open and closes and you keep the majority of your funds on Lightning. But then... You know, we we have other concerns there uh, in terms of, of basically keeping your funds hot all the time uh, in an environment where it's very hard for people to be private online. Well, yeah, just to clarify, I think that we were specifically talking about on-chain so privacy, so chain privacy. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, Andrew, it was uh, overlapping with you. Oh. Because I think that uh, the, the on-chain part of privacy is something that this situ this evolution will address and mitigate. But then there is a network part of the privacy uh, problem that this solution will actually will make worse. Like already now, if you are on Lightning Network, you are in the worst case scenario, you are revealing your IP address. In the best case scenario, you're just giving out the onion, but it's, it's maybe the same onion to everybody paying you. So. Uh, so it, it's not a general privacy improvement, it's a uh, chain analysis privacy improvement. The, the distinction, I think, is that uh, the, uh, pri chain privacy may be more systemically important 
because uh, with network privacy, people will suffer individually. So you have a local suffering. You screw up, you get punished, you get, uh, you get some retaliation. While uh, with uh, the, the, this chain analysis narrative that is building up, uh, every coin is traceable, every coin is unfungible, you create a more systemic uh, fungibility problem. So uh, you are completely right, Matt. Uh, Off-chain paradigm will not solve privacy, but it could transform chain privacy problems into network privacy problems that are better because they are more local and a little bit less systemic, I would say. All righty. Well, listen, Nick, you came late. I've got something I want to ask you. Um, we are, it's been a very interesting year for Bitcoin price-wise. Um, we are, I think last month was the second highest month close on record. Uh, it feels like a good time for Bitcoin. It feels like, like it is for gold. It feels like there's a lot of rampant money printing, which is, uh, which is driving interest. But also, it felt like we were due a bull market anyway. We've been in this bear market forever. I know you do a lot of like analysis of various bits of on-chain activity. Like, how are you reading it at the moment? Well, one thing I would say, I mean, I don't do a lot of like price talk or, you know, moon talk or whatever, but uh, if you look at the appreciation in the last couple months here, I'd say a lot of it is due to the devaluation of the dollar as opposed to the increase of Bitcoin in real terms, you know, so it's probably worth uh, including a CPI deflator in your Bitcoin price uh, analysis. Um, so, you know, what that means is like, you might have a better denominator uh, to, to better assess the actual performance of Bitcoin. You might want to substitute gold as your denominator instead of uh, the dollar because, you know, the, the equation could be due to the fluctuations in the numerator or the denominator. We know for a fact the dollar is, is devaluating both against other sovereign currencies, the, the DXY, the trade weighted index, which is against other sovereign currencies, and just in absolute terms, um, with with you know many trillions of dollars being printed and uh, GDP not increasing, you know commensurately. So, um, I, some of the growth in Bitcoin is illusory, unfortunately. I mean, it does mean that it's protecting you from the devaluation of sovereign currency, but it doesn't mean necessarily the Bitcoin is granting you an increased ability to buy real goods and services, you know, suits and stakes and stuff. It just means that. Uh, the uh, the denominator is changing, you know. The, the dollars are, are becoming worth less and less. Are we not seeing trade levels go up though? What do, what do you, mean? you mean? Like volume? Because oh. I, I, I haven't looked. Is, vo is volume up? Uh, honestly, I I've maybe like become less of a fan of of the analysis of uh, Bitcoin exchange volumes or on chain volumes as a way to ascertain. The quote-unquote fundamental. Um, I think, you know, really Bitcoin's kind of monetary transactional network probably has less influence on the price than just people's propensity to convert their savings into Bitcoin. And so there, there's definitely, you know, endogenous factors like how much Bitcoin is being used in commerce at a given time. But really... I think the thing that has much more influence is the exogenous factor of the broader monetary context that Bitcoin sits in and whether or not 
certain individuals in a country with a depreciating currency are converting their savings into Bitcoin or not. And, uh, you know, we know that's happening. Obviously, there's plenty of data points that tell us it's happening. People are are moving into Bitcoin, uh, you know, just, you know, progressively converting their savings into Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, fiat currency failure and devaluation is going to be the, the main driver of Bitcoin as opposed to this kind of endogenous growth. All right. Well, listen, look. I've taken up a bunch of your time, a lot of your time over the last couple of years. I do have like a couple of closeout things I want to do with all of you. I'll start with you, Jack. Um, I've done 250 episodes. Be another two and a half years, another couple of years I've done another 250 episodes. Kind of, what would you, two questions. What is one of the most important things for you to see happen on Bitcoin? Like, what are you really interested in seeing? And then give us some kind of prediction for when we sit here in another two and a half years and do this? Um, I, I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer here. Nope. Uh, maybe privacy. Um, I, I think the conversation that uh, Matt and Giacomo and uh, Andrew just had on privacy is really, really important um, and probably um, underappreciated, I would say, when, I don't know, just comparing like resource allocation um, but I also at the same token would love to see an ETF, which is a different conversation. Um, so, but I'll stick with privacy. I think, um, Bitcoin development, we've seen an uptick in like open donations and funding engineers in 2020, which I'm really excited about. And, uh, I think there's always been a misallocation of resources, just fundamentally speaking, I think the incentives are always to build an exchange and become a billionaire. Like everyone who starts an exchange is a billionaire. So you can't argue with that incentive. But um, I, I would like to see things like privacy uh, on chain at, at the base layer. Um, what would be great if I had a magic wand? I would, I would maybe that'd be one of my top picks for sure. An ETF. Any kind of interesting prediction? Anything you'd want to hang your hat on? Yeah, I think Bitcoin is going to be a trillion dollar asset in the next like 12 to 18 months. Boom. I'll, right, Matt, I'll hang my head on that one. Yeah, all right. I'll hold you to that one. Um, Matt, what about you? Same two questions. Got to follow up a nice conservative prediction from uh, Jack over there. Um, you know, I just, I think every day that Bitcoin survives, it gets stronger. Um, I think we haven't really seen, I, I think most people realize that the true value prop of this stuff is, is that it's independent of states and corporations. Um, that state resistance that, that no particular country can control it is what makes it unique and what makes it valuable in my opinion. So I think something that's really important to watch is, in particular, the, the biggest states, you know, the, the U.S., China, Russia, uh, the most sophisticated ones, um, how they respond to it. Because the longer Bitcoin grows and survives without like a very sophisticated attack against it, uh, the better off we are. Like, I, to be clear, my perspective on the world is that if we don't have an independent private money, we are fucked. Like we need Bitcoin to work. 
So I'm hoping that over the next two and a half years, we don't see those attacks escalate. But my main concern is that I think we are witnessing an attack right now that people aren't taking that seriously. And I think Bitcoin has gotten through a lot. And now that it's gotten through so much, our biggest vulnerability is individual user privacy. Because if you want to attack this system, the best way to attack it is the individual users of the system. And are, and specifically identifying them and identifying their usage patterns before you kind of implement any kind of regulatory pressure and like really push push it forward. So I'm just hoping I'm at like I think we can just like skate by. That would be the best case scenario for Bitcoin. Um, I think we pump regardless. You know, I think I think I think Bitcoin price like I don't know about a trillion dollars in eighteen months, but uh, I, I think it's inevitable. I, I just I just hope that when we come out the other side, it maintains its independence uh, and that that it is it is a way for people to opt out. Giacomo, to you as well. Yeah, I think that Jack cheated here because he didn't say trillion dollar of current purchasing power of the dollar. So now he is, uh, is not only playing in the Bitcoin team, but also in the Federal Reserve team, which is, is very powerful. So there may be some cheat there. But anyway, I, I think it's, it's pretty reasonable, especially because Team Fed is, is very, very, I mean, it's great. It's doing a great job, uh, even better than Team Bitcoin could even imagine. So uh, I, I think that uh, we we all agree that privacy is kind of a big deal, especially because uh, there was a, there was a Bitcoin Milan meetup a few years ago where there was uh, Peter Todd talking, and he made a great analogy uh, between two kinds of danger: the fire danger and the mercury danger. So the fire danger is is uh, fire can hurt people, but is a good kind. It's not good. It's bad, but is a better kind of hurt because people immediately feel the, the, the suffering and they just, you just take, take out the end as soon as you feel the heat. So fire hurts you immediately. While mercury is something shiny that people can play with with many years before uh, dying basically out of it without uh, having an, an option to, uh, to, 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 to correct what went wrong. So the, the privacy problem, unlike other problems, like, uh, unlike many problems may come in face, the privacy problem can have this kind of mercury uh, aspect to it, which is very dangerous. Like before the bef we stay in a in a kind of uh, honeymoon phase, apparently legal honeymoon phase for a while, and then they do the mouse tongue move of uh, letting flowers bloom and taking names, and then they actually uh, they actually. So yeah, I, I totally agree with Matt that that's the exciting part. Uh, and the other, the other exciting part is just uh, my shitcoin pumping even more than Bitcoin. Zach's box will, will be a quadrillion dollar in two months. <coughs> Nick, I'm going to move to you and then we're going to give Andrew the final word. So the question is, uh, what do we want to see happen with Bitcoin? And one, is, is that the yeah, first question? Yeah, and, and one prediction. One prediction. Okay, so want to see happen with Bitcoin. Uh, some of you guys might not like this, Matt might not like this, but... I'd like to see more accountable Bitcoin banking. Um, so basically, you know, we have a, a set of financial intermediaries that 
uh, custody people's Bitcoin and they provide financial services. And I don't see that going away, quite frankly. Uh, what I would like to see would be for the community to hold those entities more accountable. Proof of reserve is the ver- it's the most basic element of that, um, but basically proving that you're solvent uh, to your depositors. And I think if exchanges don't do that, it's going to be forced on them by the state, which would be much worse, right? So I'm pro the kind of self-regulatory measure here as opposed to the, the, you know, the reactive uh, response from the state once they finally realize what's going on and that there's enormous consumer protection issues. Um, so I also think that you know, exchanges, they don't, they're not very creative in terms of what they give their depositors with the, you know, the, the financial service that they provide to them. They could be doing a lot more. We could see the emergence of Chamian banks built on Bitcoin. We could see stable coins built on top of Bitcoin. I'm sure uh, people would, would find that interesting. There's probably even ways to do that in a permissionless way, quite frankly. Um, so I would like to see more vibrancy there. Um, and I know that's not in, in like the core Bitcoin ethos, but um, it's fine to me that there is this more financialized Bitcoin market where credit is created, uh, as well as the the more cypherpunky gray market where um, settlement is final, you know, 100% of the time. Uh, th- I think those are going to coexist. Um, my prediction would be, you know, Bitcoin lives in this kind of broader macroeconomic context, for better or for worse. Um, that macro context is clearly degenerating in front of our very eyes right now. So I think in the near term, we're going to see a lot of sovereign debt crises, probably in in Latin America, but maybe in, in Central Asia, maybe Southeast Asia. Um, the world is absolutely encumbered with debt right now, and uh, we're going to have to pay the piper. And the easiest way to get rid of high debt burdens is not by growing GDP, it's by uh, decreasing the, uh, the, uh, the size of the debt in nominal terms by by defaulting or by uh, devaluing a currency that the debt is denominated in, uh, so we're going to see chaos there. We've already seen the stirrings of that in you know fairly middle-income countries like Turkey, uh, Lebanon. You know Venezuela was was a middle-income country before. So we're not talking about the poorest countries here. We're talking about middle-of-the-road countries that become completely burdened by debt and have to confiscate the wealth of savers in order to get out of that conundrum. I think the other thing that I think is likely to happen is the U.S. government is going to surprise everyone with the amount of inflation they're able to create. Um, and nobody is really expecting inflation right now. Uh, but if we have direct issuance of currency to individuals the way that we've seen in the last few months here, as opposed to you know, printing more tokens that uh, banks hold on their balance sheet and those don't make it into the real economy, uh, that direct-to-consumer issuance, that's kind of high-velocity issuance. That's the stuff of inflation. That's what inflation is made of, dollars that make it out into the real economy. Um, and I, I'm guessing that we're going to have something akin to like wartime finance here, where we have very low real rates and relatively high inflation that the government uses to basically inflate away the real size of their debt. I don't see an, an alternative here, quite frankly. Um, so... It's going to be one with this basically wealth confiscation. Uh, treasuries are, are going to lose money um, and people are going to look for alternative assets. Uh, and obviously the, the very best one is Bitcoin. Uh, gold also looks good and that's why I've seen gold doing great. Uh, but yeah, I think inflation is going to surprise to the upside. Obviously in, in developing countries where, where lots of these currencies are going to be destroyed and then the dollar 
uh, which is going to be a pretty inferior product for the foreseeable future. Um, so that's going to mean Bitcoin goes up in nominal terms at the very least uh, and probably real terms as well. All right, Andrew, you get to take us out. Cool. Um, I think normally I would talk about privacy here, but I think most of, most of you actually covered privacy. I'm going to take a slightly different tap. And so what I want to see in Bitcoin is an improvement in users' ability to have sovereignty over their own coins. And I mean that in a bit of a technical sense. What I mean is right now to hold Bitcoin, basically you install, so if you're like a power user, you install Bitcoin Core and you like validate the whole network and you do all that stuff. But then you still generate these addresses where all of your coins are controlled by like the secret key. And maybe that secret key is actually derived from Bit32 seed, okay, that you've got on like a hardware wallet. And then you have that single seed backed up on like a crypto steel or something, or like a, a TI steel, or like there's all these titanium metal products where you can uh, encode your key somehow on a hunk of metal that's supposed to survive a house fire or so on. So already, so already that's like way better than you could do three years ago, even though that's, that's quite a power user stack that I'm talking about. But there, there are big problems there. Um, so one is that it's kind of technical. Like this isn't the standard workflow. You can't go to like Bitcoin.org. Certainly can't go to Bitcoin.com and, and see that you're supposed to do this. Um, they're kind of obscure products. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit uh, hokey to, uh, to actually set this up. But then you just have this one key, right? You've got this, uh, this, this hunk of metal that you've got to keep, I don't know, like in a safety deposit box or... I've considered like etching these on the back of, of like light switch covers. Probably no one's ever going to look there, right? I'm just putting them around my house. But how do you split those keys up, right? You have this redundancy issue where you've got a single key where if that gets leaked, then, you know, your money gets stolen forever. If you lose that, then nobody has a key and the money's gone forever. Um, so if you want to split that up, if you want to make it redundant somehow, right now there aren't really good workflows for doing that. And so what I'd like to see is an improvement on two fronts there. One is the ability to split up these keys. So if you control this key, you can, you can make it redundant, you can add error correction, and you can have multiple shards around the world. Um, and secondly, it would be nice if we could have more ergonomic multi-signature addresses that ordinary users could use. So you have just like a five or six multi-sig like on the blockchain, and those six keys, then those, those correspond to, to different physical um, entities that you're able to store around the world. And um, so on the, the secret sharing and coding front, uh, there's, there's always all sorts of interesting projects uh, going on there. And I think that probably over the next year, um, one or two of them will come out that people actually talk about, people actually use, um, which I have mixed feelings about. I generally, I don't like secret sharing. I feel like multi-signatures are the superior direction to go, but people want secret sharing. People kind of understand secret sharing and, and it's great that people are developing it. It's much better than nothing. And then on the multi-signature front, um, I've been working on Miniscript. We're seeing Bitcoin Core and a few other wallets are working on integrating um, what are called output descriptors and Miniscripts, which are a way to generalize, not to generalize addresses, but to generalize the, the public keys that correspond to addresses. So instead of having a single key, you can have these with the multi-signatures and stuff like that. And you can have those in a way that's just user comprehensible, where you've got like a text string that represents like what the policy is, right? You've got two of these three keys or after a certain age, then like this extra bonus key comes into play because presumably you lost the others or whatever. And something like that that you can print out um, the keys themselves, you can etch into steel, you have multiple keys that you can store in different places, all that good stuff. Um, I'm really optimistic that over the next year or two, we're going to uh, like, we'll see like that actually get into users' hands. And I think that's something that's really critical 
Because right now, to get all the sovereignty promise of Bitcoin, you need to be like really technical. And even if you're really technical, the setup that you come up with is probably pretty fragile. And it's probably something that like a lot of people on this call are secretly concerned about is that they have some amount of Bitcoin stored. And they're like embarrassed by how fragile their storage setup is, in fact. And the reason is there just isn't good tooling out there. There isn't um, like there isn't user accessible stuff you can like be crazy and write your own wallet and do all this, this elaborate things. And then okay, well, what happens if you hit your head or something? Now like nobody else knows how to use your custom made wallet, or you can use off the shelf stuff and it doesn't exist. So um, the fun of prediction. I'm going to be fun. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to say that by the end of 2020 a taproot deployment will be in progress. Yay. That's crazy talk. I'm going to throw that out there and then then for years you guys can harp on me about it. (laughs) Wow. That's a bold statement. Well, listen, look, thank you, everyone. Um, I couldn't make this uh, show without people coming on and appreciate you all. You've all come on multiple times. I've hung out with you all. Uh, Really appreciate it. Hopefully... um, We'll be here in another two and a half years. Bitcoin will be over 100,000. I will have a Lamborghini. I don't don't give a fuck however that pisses off. And uh, everything will be great. But look, I appreciate all of you. And and, um, thank you so much. And I wish you all the best. All right. What do you think of that? It's pretty cool to have all those guests together on one show. To get Polster, Giacomo, Jack Mallers, Matt O'Dell, and Nick Carter all together. It's pretty amazing. So thank you all of those guys. I think I've done like... 19 shows between them so yeah really appreciate getting them all on okay yeah just a few thanks this is a bit of like a self-indulgent week sorry i just want to thank everyone it's been pretty amazing this last three years so just again thank you to my sponsors to all of them that helped me do this couldn't do it without you same with the guests i can't make a show without you so thank you so much and also you the listeners everything you've done sharing listening to the show everything writing to me all the time thank you thank you so much i hope we get through another 250 episodes if you do have any questions you want to reach out to me my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com outside of that have a great weekend and i will see you all soon